Welcome to the Run Run Live 3.0 podcast, where we celebrate the transformational powers of endurance sports. Hello, my friends, and welcome to episode 3-284 of the Run Run Live podcast. The two-bell tone means that the captain has started his approach into Boston's Logan International Airport. Please return all seats and tray tables to their full and upright positions and pass any service items that you may have accumulated to the stewardesses as they come through the aisles. How have you been? I managed to finish the Umstead Trail Marathon last weekend to give me my 12 marathons in 12 months. That's something, isn't it? Nothing left except to take back the Boston Marathon finish line. It was a very pretty course. The first eight miles or so were a single track and then rolling dirt roads for the rest of it. Nice and dry, you know, no course conditions, great course, great organization, real sweet people, a real treat of a race. I would recommend it. And the park where they run this race, it abuts the Raleigh-Durham airport, so it's super easy to get in and out of. My goal was to beat the cutoff (laughs) and finish, and I did that. The first 18 miles were great, but the last 8 to 10 were a bit of a slog. I'm just not fit. And let me tell you my tale of woe. I've been kind of bummed out that I can't race these marathons, or at least handle them with some style. But looking back on the year, I'm frankly amazed that I was able to run as well as I did for as long as I did. Those last three were three marathons in just a couple days longer than a calendar month. I was feeling reasonably fit after doing some quality Zone 2 training in December, and my ankle was a little sore, but nothing I couldn't manage. I felt really strong in that self-supported Groton Marathon that we did after Christmas, and things were seemingly looking up. And then I did what Coach is always telling me not to do. I raced. I went with my family up to the New Year's Day Hangover Classic with the Ocean Plunge, as is our tradition, and I felt reasonably fit, so I laid down a reasonable 7.17 pace for the 10K. But when I got home, the ankle was swollen, and I had to have my daughter tape it so I could put on my boots to go out and shovel. Snow every four days here during the winter. And I couldn't train. I had two marathons come and do on back-to-back weekends, so what to do? So I signed back up for my pool membership in January, and I commenced to pool run to see if I could retain enough fitness to jog these two marathons and come out the other side vertical. I was a bit worried. You, You can fake a marathon, but what if I came up injured in the first one? If I hurt myself on the hills in Waco, how would I tow the line in New Orleans the following weekend? So it was with a big mental sigh of relief that I came out of New Orleans in one piece. I had to fly to Europe the next day, (laughs) that week, directly from New Orleans. And so I took that whole week off, no running. Then Saturday, I came back, and I tweaked my back shoveling snow. 
I didn't think much of it at the time. You know, this sort of thing lasts for a couple days and goes away. But no, I was unable to train at all for the whole next week. No core, no bike, no nothing. Now I'm looking at a trail marathon in two weeks, and I can barely walk. <laughs> the pain in my back, and it didn't go away. So getting into my car, getting it out of a chair, sitting in an airplane seat, it was just torture. And I was walking around leaning to the left. I was listing to the left. I was bent. And another week passed. And now I lost a week to European travel, two weeks to back pain, and I'm starting to freak out. I'm seven days out from a hard trail marathon, and all I've been able to do <laughs> is one or two light pool runs for two months, except for a couple of marathons, of course. And I've gained at least 10 pounds, and I'm a big, fat, unfit mess. And so I went in to see Eric for a massage, but that didn't help my back. In a fit of desperation, with less than a week to go before the race, I scheduled a visit with my with my doctor, and I don't mind running in pain, but I wanted to make sure that this back pain was not something structural that was going to leave me in a wheelchair for the rest of my life if I ran the marathon. And my general practitioner, my GP, who I only see for a physical every couple of years, or if I hurt myself, that's Dr. Schlemack, and he replace my previous GP, Dr. Wong, who retired. And I've only seen Dr. Schlemack once or twice before. And one of those times he had his finger in my ass, which is not a basis for a trusting relationship. But he was great this time around. And he basically said, yeah, you hurt your back. You should go see a chiropractor. And he also said, activity's good for that. Stay active. So as soon as I got out of there, I sent an SOS to the local running community to find a chiropractor that I could trust, and I had never been to a chiropractor, and basically put them in the same classification as palm readers and witch doctors. And I wasn't disappointed. Several members of my running club, local running club, gave glowing recommendations for one local guy. So now it's the week before the marathon, the Umstead Marathon, and I'm still walking around listing to the left about 10 degrees, and my back muscles are in spasm mode, and I haven't trained in two months. So Friday morning, the day before the race, I managed to get an appointment with the Cairo, Dr. Terry, and he starts by sticking me in exam room and making me watch a video. It's like Thomas the Tank Engine for chiropractic, and I'm not amused, and I'm considering making a break for it. But then the doctor comes in and he pokes my back a bit and explains to me that my fourth and fifth vertebra are stuck together. He does some contortions and pops them apart. And I have to tell you, your mileage may vary, but I was instantly relieved. I stood up straight for the first time since the injury and it was like the clouds had parted and the sun came out. It was amazing. The back muscles were still sore, but the, the whole tension and the, and the list to the, to the right was gone. And he told me, Activity was good for it. And, of course, I didn't mention to either of these guys that I was planning to run a marathon the next day. So I got on a plane and flew to North Carolina for my 43rd marathon in my 19th state. And I can't say that cracking my back got me any fitter, but my back feels great this weekend after running. And I'm back to doing core and stretching and working out. I think we're on our way out. There was no back pain in the race. My legs, well, that's another story. But hey, you can't have everything. One thing that I discovered is that when I started to get injured, I began to give up a little to embrace the inability. But your body can do anything if your mind is on board. The flip side is true as well. If you lose the mental game, your body can't carry you. 
This whole 12 marathons in 12 months or even three marathons in 35 days ended up being a bit anticlimactic. I was disappointed in myself. After all, anyone can show up and suffer through stuff. There's nothing special about that. But looking back at the trials and tribulations of the, of the last couple of years and my journey through a marathon a month this year, I, I see it as something of a cumulative worthiness. The way I hung in there and didn't give up, that stirs some pride. Didn't someone famous say showing up is half the battle? Now it's back on the training bus because I've got a very important marathon finish line to visit on April 21st this year. Today we're going to talk to David Mills, who was nice enough to share with me his book on how to be an average Joe Ironman. In section one, I have an enjoyable, inspirational piece on being epic. And in section two, we'll talk about some strategies to finish your marathon when you're not fit and the wheels come off. On with the show. Are you hungry? Here's some food for thought. Innovation and breaking patterns with epicness. How do you shake things up? Sometimes people get stuck into patterns. They think they're being safe, but they are unhappy. This wouldn't bother me too much, except that they make everyone around them unhappy by complaining about it. Have you ever heard someone say, it doesn't challenge me, but it's a good job, and it has health insurance, or something like, I know he's not the one, but he's a stable guy. Those people are stuck. Maybe they're okay with that, but it's a waste of their potential. We all suffer when someone wastes their potential. How do you get out of a pattern? How do you get out of a rut? The interesting thing that I've found is that you can break a rut through innovation or epicness. The corollary to this is that the change doesn't even have to happen in the area that the rut exists. This is an extension of that keystone habit topic that we discussed a couple weeks ago. You don't have to kick that boring boyfriend out or quit that milk toast job. You can innovate in other areas like your health or your fitness, for example. The point is that by innovating in any area of your life, work, family, health, spiritual, you create a gravity well that starts to pull other areas into it. Example, you start eating well and working out and losing weight and getting fit. All of a sudden, all those people who populate the other areas of your life start to get worried. They worry that this is somehow about them. You're losing weight and it upsets the apple cart at work and in your relationships. It's funny or maybe sad, but ultimately, it's predictable that people will feel threatened. Even though you aren't directly messing with that part of your life, they will start with passive-aggressive intervention and move on to simple meanness. But it is a catalyst for change. That is how you will know you're making a difference. You have directly caused a shift in gravity in your life, and they are like antibodies trying to kill off the intruder. They are in their minds trying to protect the host from change. What do I mean by innovation? Basically, I mean trying something new. Pick an area of your life and try something new. That's it. Simple. But you will be surprised how much inertia holds you back from that simple act of trying something new. Oh my God, I just don't have the time to join the volleyball team at the local rec center. The challenge with innovation is engineering it into your life. 
I'm not talking about trying something new one time. I'm talking about designing into your life that you rigorously and relentlessly try new things. Make yourself an innovation machine. The other challenge with innovation is the innovator's dilemma that we have talked about before. In order to try something new, you have to break, discard, or change something old. The scary part is that old thing may not be dysfunctional. It may be a habit or an endeavor that is okay. The ability to break mediocre endeavors and replace them with innovative endeavors is the thing. It's quite scary, and it can be risky. You have to make innovation your habit. That's why we don't do it. We ask the question, what if this new thing doesn't work? Then I'm stuck without the new thing, and I burn my boats. There's no retreat. And that is exactly the power of innovation. You have burned your boats, and you will have to figure out how to make it work. It will bring out the best in you. You may have to pivot. What's a pivot? A pivot is a concept for startup companies where you realize that the strategy you started out with is not working. These companies are nimble enough to change direction quickly and on the spot to pursue a new strategy with what they learn from the first pass. In one of my startups I worked with, my marketing guy and I, we'd launch a white paper to our list every two weeks, and we'd watch it. And if the uptake was a stinker, nobody want, nobody liked it, we'd change it. If it was a winner, we'd create more content around that. In a normal company, the marketing calendar is fixed and it would take months to change a theme. Pivot. Innovate. On the surface, innovation looks like taking a risk, but it, the reality is that you will get more from yourself if you put yourself in that position. You'll figure it out. You will have sleepless nights and maybe psychiatrist visits, but you will look back on it and say, why didn't I do that sooner? I've said this before. If you want to know where to innovate, look for things that scare you. That is where you will find the big leaps. If it scares you, there's a reason. This is a blind spot for you, and you should embrace it. Ask the question, what's the worst that can happen? I lose my job. I take a hit. That's not the way entrepreneurs think. Entrepreneurs think, I can always get another job, but this, this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. It forces you to grow. Do something that scares you. Look at the areas of your life and see what makes the hair stand up on the back of your neck. Work, family, health, spiritual, something in there scares you. Go do it. Innovate. Get your feet on those hot coals and see how you can dance. Finally, when you're stuck in a pattern and you just can't get out of it, no matter how hard you try, there is the nuclear option. Go epic. This is why running a marathon or doing an Ironman, or qualifying for Boston, or running a 100 miles. That changes people. That's the secret to epic. You exit the epic thing, a different person than the one who came in. That's the power of epic. Break your pattern by obliterating it. When you find yourself in a particularly intransigent rut, blow it up. Break the frame of reference. The power of epic is that you purposely cut the strings to the ordinary. You cut yourself adrift in an unknown place. This, my friends, is freedom, pure and simple. What are the attributes of epic? Epic will be different for everyone. Epic is a thing that is totally outside your frame of reference. It is that thing that you would never have considered possible until you do it. 
It is consciously putting yourself in the position of unknown territory, terra incognita. There be dragons there. It should scare you, but not as much as you think, because once you commit to epic, your frame of reference is broken, and the old rules don't apply. All of those reasons for fear are now disembodied butterflies fluttering about, and they really don't matter because you've got this epic thing to snuggle up with every night. And it doesn't matter if you're actually successful at this thing. You may surprise yourself because it's amazing what you can do once you decide it can be done and commence to do it. Even a near miss or an epic fail breaks your frame. Failing is sometimes more powerful because it makes you mad and you learn from it. So, my friends, where can you instill a mindset and a practice of innovation in your life? Or do you need to break the frame and go epic? Cheers. And now for today's featured interview. All right, David. Yes. We're back. That was quick. All right. We were met online someplace, and you sent me a copy of your book there. Um Right. I think it was it was called Going the Distance. Is that what it was called? Yeah, it's called uh The Distance. Uh the average you know, the it's it's a it's a book for average Joes trying to balance family life and triathlon. And it's just right. based on my experience of uh, you know, training for that first Ironman distance triathlon while uh, you know, full time job and, and two kids at home. Yep. And uh and, and I read it. Uh, I, I read it recently, so thank you for that. And I think what struck me, and this is something that I'm, I talk about a lot, is the transformational nature of any of these big endurance events. You know, once you sign Absolutely. up, yeah, once you sign up and follow through, your life changes forever. And I, right. I like, I like your attitude on that. I don't think anybody can fully know. You know, on that moment that they register for the event, that moment they click submit on their online application or whatever, they can't really fully know how much their life just got on a roller coaster. And uh, almost kind of like having a kid, it's going gonna, it's gonna to completely change your life. Absolutely. Right. And what I liked about your book is you chunked it up into use the race as a metaphor or the process as a metaphor, and you chunked it up into in the smallest chapters which were simple to read, right? So I get, you know, hung up sometimes when books go too deep on the training stuff, and I appreciate the fact that you didn't do that. Right. It's definitely it's it's not it's not a training guide. It's not meant to lay out your plan of nutrition and how often you should you should bike each week. It's not one of those. There's tons of those. This is more about um kind of the mental aspect of it, kind of just, you know, one guy's story being shared to another in hopes of encouraging uh, others to go for big goals that maybe they're hesitant to go for in their life. So when you give us the, the 200 words or less on uh, what the book is about and what that time in your life was like and, and what you did. Okay. Well, at that time in my life, I was living in Okinawa, Japan. I had a wife and, and two young boys over there and uh, working full-time as a navigator in the Air Force. And a buddy of mine talked me into registering for an Ironman. I, I went for it. And the training, the book is really about the training and the struggles of, um, you know, getting sick, going on business trips, 
all those things that come up while you're trying to uh, train for the world's craziest endurance triathlon event and how you come through it learning so much about yourself and just really becoming what I believe to be a better person on the other side of that finish line. Yep. And when you come out of something like that, you you say, okay, if I can do this, what else can I do? And that's probably how you get on to writing a book, right? You know, that's probably that's probably a part of it. But you're absolutely right about other things in life just get so much smaller. All those other big things, once you've accomplished, I know once I accomplished the Ironman, so many other things that looked big before, they, they, they weren't quite as big anymore. And, uh, yeah, the book might have been part of that. Who knows? One of your other big points is you say anybody can do this. Exactly. Um, I'm, a, by- I'm a huge believer in that. I, I honestly believe that with all my heart. And it's not a cliche. It's something that I tell people, if you can swim across the pool, if you can jump in and swim across the pool in somebody's backyard and you can ride a bicycle around the block and run across your yard, uh, there's there's absolutely no reason why you couldn't do um, a full Ironman triathlon. We just, we just increase it. We stretch ourselves by one step a day. You know, and it takes it takes months and months and months to train. You can just uh, ride your bike five miles today. You c- you can ride it six next weekend and and seven the week after that. So, it's just baby steps. And people don't don't realize that, and they're they're much better at uh, sort of making up all the reasons why they can't do it than than doing that first step. Oh, that's very true. That's very true. We're always we're programmed to come up with a lot of good reasons really quick why we can't do something that's going to be uncomfortable for us. It's interesting because I, I read a lot of these books, you know, and, and to a to a person, whether it's you or, you know, Chrissy Wellington or whoever, the first thing they say is, I never thought of myself as an athlete. And I think that's funny because I say the same thing, right? And then you go back right. and you say, well, we've, we've done all these things, but we don't consider ourselves an athlete. You know, where's the disconnect? That's so. a good question, and, and I don't know. I don't know that I have the answer to that, but I think a lot of it is uh, is the way in which we we get to that point in our life. It's through such little gradual baby steps. There's no one morning that that I woke up and could ride my bike 112 miles. You know, it just it comes in such gradual little increments, little bite-sized increments along the way that you don't even notice where you've arrived. Sometimes you look back and you're like oh wow i've come a long way but i don't remember a time or a day in which i got here and maybe that's why people like uh you know maybe maybe it's the same for for the pros you know like wellington i don't know and the other thing you notice when you're doing that you're going through that process you get to your you know like for a marathon you get to your tape and you go oh i only have to run 13 miles today you know i got an easy yeah. week whereas when you started it would have been oh crap i gotta run 13 miles today Absolutely. It's all about the perspective. You know, if you if you set out to do a 10-mile run and then halfway through it or, or, you know, at the beginning of it even, maybe you're, you're realizing that you're sick, you don't feel good or whatever, but you suddenly say, you know what, I'm going to chop that in half. I'm only going to do five today. Well, now suddenly your five-mile run seems really, uh, seems really easy and doable, and it, and it only seems that way because you would set off to do 10. So, it is definitely all about your perspective, and, 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 you know, once you've done the bigger one, the smaller one seems so much easier. Once you realize what your body is capable of, 
I think you're a little bit quicker maybe next time to, to bite off something big because you know, hey, I'll get there. I'll stretch myself slowly just like I did that other time. So what's different about an Iron Man? What do you mean? How so? <laughs> uh, open-ended question, but really, you know, we talked about how endurance events have this capacity to change people's lives when they hit okay. submit on the website. But you are of the opinion that not just any endurance event, but the the, the Iron Man is, right. has a particular capacity to change people's lives. So, what's different about yeah. the Iron Man? There's several things, really. Uh couple of them come to my mind and I'll just share I'll share one right away something funny that I consider to be the most the most daunting part of an Ironman to, to 99 out of 100 people that I'll talk to is the swim everyone's intimidated by the swim when you when when somebody asks you about an Ironman they say you know how far is that swim that's always the question and the swim is 2.4 miles and when people hear that wow, you can just see the, the discouragement in their eyes because they think instantly, I, I can't do that. I can't swim 2.4 miles. We don't even think of swimming in terms of miles. <laughs> As most Americans, we don't. So I, I've always said that the swim portion of the Ironman is like the bouncer at the door. Once you get past that swim, you're in and you've got it. And you know at that point you can do anything the rest of the day because you've made it through the swim. So I think that that's one of the things alone that, that separates an Ironman triathlon from other uh, big endurance events, like maybe ultra marathons or something, it, is the uh, you know the, the nature of the three events, the three disciplines combined into one, especially that swim that just scares people. People will say, I could probably bike 112, maybe I guess, and I, well I've run a marathon before, so I could do that, but but that swim, I don't know about that. I couldn't swim that far and there's just something about that moment in the Ironman when you come out of the water and you're dripping wet and you get on your bike you you know you've still got an entire day's worth of endurance event ahead of you you've got to bike 112 and then you've got to run a marathon but but there's a part of you that still you feel like you've got it you got it in the bag because you just knocked out the swim you get on that bike and you just got a goofy grin because you know you can do the rest Right, and and I think that was one of the the takeaways I got from your from your book was how you approached the swim and how you looked at it. You said, you know what, I got two hours to do this. That's really right. the only constraint. And if you look at you know the the Ironman swim, it's uh, 80 laps in the pool or uh, 160 lengths in the 25 meter pool. Right. And so that's what you got to do in under two hours. And if you do the math on that, it's really really slow. Right. right, absolutely. So, so it's it's one of those things where if you put it in perspective of what the cutoff is, and like you said, if you can get through that and beat the cutoff, then you know you get the bike, you get the run. That's that's right. It's all about that uh, that mentality. You know, that's what separates you know us. I believe you you use the term middle 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 packers, middle of the packers, and. And I say average Joes and all of us that are just trying to finish the event. We're not we're not the contenders. We're not the uh, the pros. But for us that are just trying to finish and we just want to cross that finish line, it's all about that mentality of hey, I've 
X amount of time, I can go slow and easy. This is not a uh, sprint. I don't need to break my neck here. In fact, a funny story from a um, a girl that I met in Georgia that uh, turns out we had done some, some of the same triathlons. Uh, she was telling me the, the moment that she decided to go for an Ironman, the moment she decided, I think I'll try it, I'll register, was she heard a friend of hers telling her about her Ironman experience, and she said uh, she had packed a picnic lunch for herself on the bike. And yeah. she found a nice uh, shady spot on this 112-mile bike course. She pulls over, sits in the shade, and eats a nice picnic lunch. And when she re- heard that, she realized, oh, I kind of understand the uh, the pace of the race and the mentality of it and how it's an all-day thing. And I, I think I could do that. I could I could uh, stretch it out that long. Yeah, and, and that played over into your training. So one of the things i you actually put your your training plan for that first ironman in in the in the book and i looked at it one of the things that became really obvious to me is that, is that you weren't running at all i mean for a marathon training plan that was very little running um but Absolutely. you make it up you make it up with the biking and the swimming so your point is you you get yourself to the run and then with enough time to sort of you know use use your engine on the run and and that's a good point. I'm glad you brought that up because for marathon runners, considering doing an Ironman, here's a key thing that you should know. You're not training for a marathon. You're yeah. training for a triathlon, and it's cumulative. So all that swimming and all that biking that you're going to do, they're going to help your fitness on your run as well. And I, I, I try to stress to people – you're not training for three individual races. Uh, you're training for one triathlon. So you don't need to run as much as you would run if you were only training for a marathon because you're going to cut that training and you're going to divide it between swimming and biking as well. So I, I find it much more enjoyable to train for an Ironman than to train for a marathon. Uh, because I like giving myself something different to do, uh, you know, like, oh, tonight I'm for my training, I'm going to go uh, swim some laps in the pool, or, hey, today I'm going to hop on the bike and ride around town. It's all different, but it all builds on the same event. So you're absolutely right. I, I, I did not run all that much training for training for an Ironman. Yeah, and the other thing that you um, that you talk about a lot is squeezing it in. What were some of the strategies you used to squeeze it in with the fact that you were working all hours and traveling and, you know, had the young right. family, living in a foreign country? How did you squeeze right. it in? And one of the ways you squeezed it in is you just didn't work out as much as a uh, heavy-duty Ironman triathlete would. Right. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. Uh, one of the ways you squeeze it in is you just say, hey, I, I can only do what I can do. I, you know, I, there's only so many hours in the day and I got to eat and sleep and work and be with my, my family and I got to train. So if I can't do a certain uh, amount of training, I'm not going to stress over that. I'm going to do what I can do. And that's a big part of it. The other part of it was, you know, one little way I squeezed in, you know, training was, uh, during my lunch breaks. Um, I did, I think I did probably the majority, well, definitely the majority, prob- probably more like 90% of my uh, swimming 
I did over lunch breaks because you don't return from a swim all sweaty like you do a run. So it was easy. I'd go to the pool and swim 30, 40 laps, uh, stop yep. by subway on my way back to my desk. And, and that was that. And I had done my swim workout for the day and I hadn't taken any time away from anything. Right. Cause, uh, one of the things you realize is a half an hour or a 40 minute swim is a good swim. That's a good distance in the pool. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So that's uh that's a good tip. Yeah. I like working out at lunch too, because it, you know, kills two birds with one stone. It keeps you from going out and eating a big lunch and it lets yep, you, uh, right. and I also lets you work out when your body's awake. Yeah, absolutely. I'm not a, I, I'm a bit of a morning person. I love to get up early and make coffee and get to work early, but I don't like working out early. <laughs> my, my body, my body likes to wake up to a shower and a coffee. So yeah, my body's wide awake and ready to work out at lunch. So that was a great time. And the other thing I did was I just stayed flexible. I didn't, I didn't commit to a, uh, a rigid plan of here's what I'm going to do on what day. If a day turned out to, hey, this is this is going to be a good day to run outside. Well, then maybe I'll cancel my swim and I'll run. Or thunder and lightning, be like, well, you know what? I'm not biking today. Maybe I'll go inside and run on a treadmill today. So I just stayed flexible, went with whatever my work schedule and the weather allowed me to do, and I just did what I could. Yep. And at the end, you just pace the race in such a way that it doesn't, you know, it doesn't kill you. There you go. <laughs> hey, so did I read that you were spent some time in Iraq recently or? Yeah, well, when I um, when I was working on my book, actually, I was back and forth with my editor and I believe the uh, the graphic designer for the cover. I was I was doing all that back and forth through email while I was deployed in the Middle East. So I was trying to wrap up the uh, the publication of the book while I was deployed. And it, it kind of made me made me almost wish that I would have waited a couple more years to write my book because what I was doing was so cool. I wish I could have written about it. I took my bike and an indoor trainer with me to the Middle East. I set it up in my little room there. And while my book was getting published, I was training for another Ironman, which I which I trained for exclusively on an indoor trainer. So that wow. was an experience all its own, <laughs> a very unique yeah. attempt at training for an Ironman that didn't make it into the book, but but was uh, pretty bizarre nonetheless. The trainer's great sometimes, but uh, those long rides are fairly uh, fairly brain-numbing and seat-numbing. It is. It's, a, it's a exercise in mental, uh, you know, mental endurance more than anything. Yeah, and what the, uh, the Ironman uh, folks do around where I live is they'll all get together at somebody's house and they'll do group rides together in the winter on the trainers. Yeah, yeah, that's a good <laughs> idea. That's a great plan. <laughs> that way at least you can talk to somebody. Yeah. So, so but it's uh, it's kind of cool training in foreign countries. I mean, you're in, you're, you're in Okinawa, and Okinawa in the summertime is really hot, right? And, oh, and my goodness, uh, yeah. It's 100, 105 degrees and 100% humidity. So yeah, I trained in that and then trained in the Middle East where I did all my biking indoors, but then I would I would uh, change clothes after my bike because I would be completely drenched. So I would get off the indoor trainer, I would change into dry running clothes and go running at night outdoors. I was already working a third shift schedule over there, so that made it nice. I would go outside and it would be, you know, 2 a.m. and I would run a few miles. 
So another example of fitting it in, right? Finding a way to to, to fit it in. I've done that. I'm myself. living. Uh, I'm living in Virginia right now, and I'm currently training for the Raleigh Half Ironman, which is a uh, is a really enjoyable distance. The uh, the seventy point three. So yeah, it's much easier training here in Virginia. Got a nice nice weather, nice climate, and a half the distance of the race. So this is this is great where I'm at now. This is easy. Yeah, see, that's another one of the things. Once you go all the way, you back off a little bit, and it's a lot easier, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, the thing about the Ironman these days, it's so popular, right? It's got this it really big, is. Uh, it... mid-pack contingent, too. Like, it's it's everybody's doing it at, for their bucket list sort of thing. Are they missing the point? Is this – I've read someplace that most people are spending five to ten grand a year in pursuit of an Ironman, a real Ironman. Wow. Right? Wow, so, I mean, I hadn't, I hadn't heard that. So you know, with the bike and the entry fees and the travel and all that stuff. So I mean, are they kind of are, are we kind of missing the point of sport? I don't know. That's an interesting question. There's a there's a whole lot of information wrapped up in that question. I guess some people might be. Probably be a fair assessment. I didn't. I know I, I've never spent near that much. <laughs> I haven't spent that much on all my races combined. I don't believe that you're right. It's growing in popularity like absolute wildfire. They're springing up new venues of uh, of races all over the place, and that's a good thing. It's going to mean you know that you don't have to. People don't have to travel as far once they spring up in cities that are closer to them. And then yeah. um, also once you once you have a bike. You know that that fee is is done. I bought my bike. I bought it in 2008, and I'm I'm still riding it. And I bought it sale. It was an 07 model. I bought in 08. So, you know, I didn't pay very much at all for that. It wasn't a high end bike to begin with. And then, so once you've got the bike, you know, all you're really paying for now is just uh, running shoes and uh, and swim goggles. So, and then another yeah. another really good thing is. Um, and I, I really hope to see more of these, and that's that's you know non-branded races. Uh, Ironman is a, is a term. That's a that's a brand. That's a trademark logo, and they're they're expensive races. I will say that they're they're worth their money. The, the support you get in one of those races is truly you are treated like a professional athlete. But for people that don't want to spend that much money, there's a lot of other triathlons of the same distances, 140.6 that are starting to spring up now. So you don't have to, you don't have to do one with the, uh, the, the Ironman brand and you can save several hundred on the uh, registration fee. Then it's more about the sport than about the, the t-shirt at that point. Yeah, that's true. That's very true. One of the things you didn't talk about, which mid packers and people like us, average Joe's experience is you get into this program, you spend a year training, you run your event and you're successful. Right, whether it's qualifying for Boston or finishing the Ironman, and then you have this sense of, oh crap, what do I do now? Right, right, yeah. the uh, sense of ennui. So, the, you know, what, what, what do you, yeah, what do you, what do you do to avoid that letdown? You get any strategies for people? Well, I know a lot of people will say, I think probably a popular answer to your question is um, a lot of people just find something else and register for it. You know, they say, oh, just just keep going and, and, and find another event out there and register for that. And now you have a new goal. 
And I'm not entirely sure that that's the best way to go. Now, it might be for some people and their circumstances. I know for me, I, I enjoyed taking a big break after mine. And it was nice to just have a season off and just Saturdays to do nothing. And, and I kind of enjoyed the, the break in the year following my, my first Ironman. It allowed me to, to kind of unwind. And, and then mentally, it, it rejuvenated me. And I found that a year after I had crossed that finish line, I found myself wanting to do it again. And it wasn't now it wasn't out of any sense of I need to find something to register for. It was I enjoyed it. I had a good break from it. And you know what? I think I'm ready to do another one. Let's let's give it a try. So that letdown feeling that 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 comes after after crossing a huge finish line in life, I'm not really sure it can be entirely disappear, but it can be it can be mitigated. Does that does that kind of answer your question? I guess. Yeah, it does. So uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna move you towards the exit here. So the the yeah. book is the uh, the distance, an average goes uh, on the on the triathlon and what's your, uh, what's your website and your, and your links, where can people find it? Absolutely. My website is the distance And if you go there, if you check out the distance I'm giving you the first three chapters of the book. They're right there on a PDF, the website for you just to, uh, click on and, and, and read the first three chapters and see if you see if you like it. And if you want to keep reading, and if you do, if you want to keep reading and uh, see how it ends, I've got the link right there that'll take you to Amazon. You can check it out on Amazon. Please, if you uh, if you like it, even if you only uh, checked it out, you know the first three chapters or whatnot. I'd uh, love to hear hear a uh, comment. Feel free to post a comment on Amazon. Also, I'm always available for emails. The Average Iron Man at gmail.com. Any questions you got about training for or registering for that first Ironman? Let me know. All right. Well, I'll let you go. Because I, I thought it was a great, a great book. You know, it was a, it was a easy read. Didn't get too detailed, but it, it really made a great case for the average Joe doing an Ironman triathlon. So I, I think you hit the mark of what you were trying to do. Hey, thanks a lot. I really appreciate it. That's great to hear. And thanks for having me on your show. All right. We'll talk to you soon. All right. Bye-bye. Yep. Bye-bye. Hitch up your tights because now we're going to talk tips and tricks for endurance sports. How to manage the crash at the end of a long race. And I speak from a lot of recent experience. I have recently run three marathons in 35 days while injured. And my challenge was not how to race. My challenge was how to survive. Especially challenging was how to survive the last six to eight miles of these races. I know what you're going to say. Why don't you just run slower? Well, duh, yeah, of course I'm running slower. But there's still a few challenges. First, I haven't got the training in that I should have to run a full marathon. At some point, it doesn't matter how slow you go. It's still 26 miles. And if you're not fit, it's going to be a struggle. But... Couldn't you walk run it, you ask, because you're a smarty pants when it comes to this running stuff. And I rejoin, well, duh, of course I'm walk running it. But as I said before, it's still 26 miles, and I haven't trained well for it. And that also means I haven't trained to run walk it either. So yeah, I can walk run, but I haven't trained for that. Even if you go out slow 
and throw in walk breaks, you can still crash. That's what I want to talk to you about today. How do you manage that crash? The first thing you learn to do as a veteran distance runner, whether you are racing or just trying to finish, is you monitor your system. You can work through almost anything and finish the race, but you have to pay attention to your body. In the first 10 miles, you have to pay attention to your breathing and your effort level. If you're trying to pace an easy race, you never want your effort level to climb above a zone 2. In general, that's an effort level of a 2 on a scale of 0 to 5. If you've got a heart rate monitor, you can watch it directly and even set up an alarm to warn you when you start to work too hard. If you don't have the heart rate monitor, just watch your breathing. If you're trying to run easy, you should be able to hold a conversation with the runners around you without any problem. Your talking should be like you're sitting in a chair in your living room having the same conversation. If you're having to breathe or gulp air between between words or sentences, you're working too hard. You want to be particularly careful on uphills and downhills early in the race. Try not to attack the ups. Even walk the steep hills to keep your heart rate down. Try not to fight the downs. Relax into the downhills and keep good balanced form. If you're just trying to survive a hilly course, how you manage the hills early in the race will determine how badly you suffer on the hills later in the race, as anyone who has tangled with the Boston course will tell you. When you start getting close to the half marathon point, start to closely monitor your vitals. How do your legs feel? How's your heating and cooling? Do you have salt crusted on your face? Are you soaking wet with sweat? How's your stomach feel? Are you nauseous? Are you hungry? I'll assume you went into the race with some sort of nutrition and fluid replacement strategy. As you get into that second half, you have an opportunity to adjust that based on how your body feels. Now's the time to take some extra fuel or some electrolytes because if you wait till mile 18, it's too late. The decisions and adjustments you make at mile 13 will impact how you feel at mile 20. As you start to get into the higher miles, things will start to hurt. You may get some fairly sharp pains, and if you want to finish, you have to deal with them. The trick is to fix your pains by adjusting on the move without letting them end your race. First, don't panic. Let me say that again. Don't panic. People beat themselves mentally by losing control at this point. They start this insane internal chatter that goes like, Oh my God, it's only mile 15. I have a foot cramp. What am I going to do? I'll never finish. 20 weeks of training down the drain. My family will hate me. I'm a failure. I'm going to lay down now. I'm such a loser. Anyone who has run more than 10 races knows that shit happens. It isn't the end of the world. It just is. It's mile 15 and you have a foot cramp. That is neither good nor bad, it just is. Don't panic. I've had these things happen more than once where you get a phantom pain and then it just goes away in another quarter mile. By panicking, you are ensuring your own defeat. Many times pain is okay, it's just part of the process. When pain comes, instead of panicking, you back off a bit and analyze it. Analyze the source. What's it feel like? Does it get better when you slow down? Does it go away when you walk? Make sure your mechanics are still good. Make a conscious effort to relax. Breathe. Smile. Fix your form. Don't fight the pain or the fatigue. Work with it. Don't change your stride or your mechanics in response to the pain. That will only make it worse. Fix your form. 
Straighten up, run tall, shoulders back, hands high and loose, hips forward, rapid foot turnover with a light foot strike. Run lightly. Many times by focusing on your form, instead of panicking, the pain will go away. A good mantra in this part of the race is run lightly. Repeat that to yourself, run lightly. Visualize yourself running lightly. Even if you are an experienced marathon runner and a Jedi master at mental control, if you're not fit enough, those last six to eight miles are going to hurt. You're going to struggle. When you get in this state, which can come with a sense of hopelessness, and is typically it's worse at mile 22 and 23, you have to manage that crash. The number one thing you need to manage is your mind. You need to state emphatically that you are going to finish, like it has already been decided and you really don't have a choice. You will finish. It's not an option. You now have to figure out how to finish. And once you have decided to finish, you can stop thinking about finishing and return your focus to where it is needed, the here and now. Shorten your horizon. Focus on the next landmark, the next water stop some other intermediate goal that will move you closer to the finish. When you get there, set another intermediate goal and work towards that. Before you know it, you will feel the pull of the finish line and hear the crowds. When you're struggling to finish a race, you will want to walk, and you may even want to stop altogether. Your tired brain may think it's a great idea to sit down and stretch. Don't do it. Keep moving. It's mentally and physically hard to keep going once you stop your forward progress. Don't stop moving forward. You can walk, but don't stop at the side of the trail to stretch. If you're forced to walk and your walk breaks are getting longer and slower, then come up with a way to control them. Here's an example from my last marathon where my leg muscles were spasming from the fatigue in the high miles and preventing me from running more than a little bit with uh, without stopping. Now, I could have just pushed through the spasms. Now, I could have just pushed through the spasms and kept running, but this may have left me lying by the side of the trail, writhing in agony with the legs that wouldn't function. That's not where I wanted to be. I wanted to finish. I had to find a balance that would get me to the finish line without just walking those last six miles. And so I picked a number of steps I could run before the spasms became too much. And it seemed to be about 50 steps. I'd started running 50 steps, then walking 50 steps. And this gave my mind a rational process to focus on. Sure, I was miles away from the finish line and my legs had basically stopped working, but I was in control of the situation. And probably most importantly... At the end of the 50 steps of walking, a mental timer went off that said, Okay, buddy boy, time to run again, and that kept me from giving up. This sort of proscribed process moves your mental state back into your big brain and out of the dinosaur brain. It puts you back in control. After a while, 50 steps of running seemed to be easy, and I was able to stretch it out. You should train well enough for your events that you don't have to manage a crash. But when you get there, as all of us do... You should be able to squeeze out a rational response and finish. The woods are lovely, dark, and deep. But I have promises to keep, and miles to go before I sleep, and miles to go before I sleep. So long, episode 3-284, and thanks for the fish. 
I am a collector of the mental arcane. I have a curious mind that likes shiny objects. My brain is a jumbled place of old, odd things like a deranged estate sale or the attic of a well-used Victorian house. I amazed one of my colleagues this week by telling her the story of the Bronze Age Caucasian mummies that they discovered in western China. See, the Chinese didn't want to believe that there were red-haired mummies buried in their desert on the wrong side of the mountains and tried to explain it as a trick of the weathering and aging process, but these days you can't escape DNA and they were proven to be Celtic, a tribe closely related to the Scots. She didn't believe me, but these days, as I have said, I have Google to back me up. The man they discovered was six foot six tall, about 50 years old with a ginger beard. The women were redheads as well. They were living in western China three to 4,000 years ago, presumably along some trade route. The Celts had a thriving Bronze Age warrior civilization that spanned Europe. They didn't write much down, and their culture was trampled by an ascendant Rome, so we don't know as much about them as we should. And here's another Google moment for you. Search for a picture of the Roman statue called the Dying Gaul. It shows the Celts as the Romans knew them, tall, athletic warriors who ran naked into battle, which in hindsight was probably not the best tactic to use against the legionaries. Like most Americans, I'm a racial mutt, but I like to think I've got Celtic blood. I've got genes from these great mystic warriors. And bringing this circuitous discussion all the way back to endurance sports, the Celts had a concept of thin places. Thin places were physical locations or mental states where the physical world was close to the metaphysical world. Thin places were where the residents of one plane of existence could communicate with those from others where you could converse with your dead ancestors, where you could see things beyond the physical. Think of it along the lines of, I saw God, or my life flashed before my eyes. I think late in a long race is a thin place, where we move beyond the physical and rub up against the unknown. I think this is why we put ourselves in these states of exhaustion and deprivation, like a fasting monk. We put the physical out of the way, so that we can commune with something beyond this place. We are rubbing thin the skin between life and infinity. I listened to a podcast this week where the author wrote a piece on how running, by any standard definition, is a religion. I think I'd go further than that. I'd say endurance sport is a spiritual endeavor. When you get to a certain point, it ceases to be a physical act and becomes a metaphysical act. Don't be afraid to take it to the edge, my friends, because when you get there, you'll find me, with my feet dangled over the edge, grinning like a madman into the abyss. Cheers. Thanks for listening, folks. I do appreciate your support. Run Run Live is a free service for you because I like writing and telling stories. I also love to meet folks, so feel free to reach out to me at Gmail or any of the other social networking sites. I'm CYKT 
Russell. And as you know, that's Chris Yellow King Tom Russell with two S's and two L's. My website is www.runrunlive.com. And most, if not all, of this content is posted out there. If you want the show notes to magically show up in your inbox when I publish a show in a beautiful HTML wrapper, you can subscribe to the mailing list at my site. You can find it there, and it also has all the links to everything and everyone that I talk to and about. Other than that, my friends, thank you for the attention. Do epic stuff, and let me know if I can help. Ciao.